Welcome to the Byron Dragway Podcast. My name is Randy Simpson. This episode is brought to you by Autoland Outlets. Before you can take your race car down the track at Byron Dragway, you first need to get your race car to Byron Dragway. And to do that, you need a reliable pickup truck to haul your trailer. That's where Autoland Outlets comes in. Specializing in the sales and service of gas and diesel pickup trucks of all makes, models, and types, they are sure to have what you're looking for. And if what you need is not in stock, they'll do the heavy lifting and find it for you. Autoland Outlets is headquartered in Roscoe, Illinois, with an additional location right here in Byron. Give them a call today at 815-525-5000 or visit autolandoutlets.com. In this episode, we sat down for a conversation with Ted Peters. Ted is a multifaceted personality within drag racing. A Mopar enthusiast through and through, Ted has been a staple among Nostalgia Pro Stock Racing and most recently made waves after acquiring the Daryl Alderman-driven original 1991 NHRA Pro Stock Championship winning Dodge Daytona from Wayne County Speed Shop. Outside of the driver's seat, racers throughout the Midwest are familiar with Ted for his role on the NHRA certification team where he frequently performs chassis inspections at events, chassis seminar dates, and also makes frequent house calls. But before Ted shifted any of his drag racing ventures into high gear, he, like his father, served in the U.S. Air Force. Humble and not seeking the limelight, Ted's service saw him stationed throughout the world. He is a veteran of Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and when conflict came to American soil on September 11, 2001, Ted, as he details in our conversation, was working at the Pentagon during and after the attack. After 23 years, Ted would retire Senior Master Sergeant. And now, let's hear from our featured guest himself, Ted Peters. We welcome her to the Byron Dragway podcast, Ted Peters. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. One thing we'd like to always know is, how did you get hooked on drag racing? Take us back to the beginning. Okay, I, I first got hooked in drag racing in about uh, 1968 when I was uh, seven or eight years old. Uh, I had a brother that's 11 years older than me, so uh, drag racing was big back then. Everybody went to the drag strip, so uh, he took me in tow. Uh, to the drag strip at an early age. So that's an early age you went to the drag strip for the first time, but I got to imagine you had cars coming in and out of the garage early on in your very formative years. So so what about it really got you in? I think it's a, you know, I, I'm more on the engineering side, so putting the cars together and actually seeing them run. I do like driving, but it's actually building them, you know, from concept to, hey, I put these parts together, hey, they all work hey, they might even actually go fast one day. So it, that's the part I enjoy the most. And I mean, driving's fun, but I, I like the engineering aspect of it. I have a degree in mechanical engineering, and I've always been mechanically inclined. So that's, I kinda, that's why I'm drawing to pro stock, because it's such a technical class. Yep. Well, you've got an older brother that's been kind of teasing you with drag racing in your early years, so you've got to wait a while before you get behind the wheel yourself. When that day finally came and you took a car down the drag strip, what was the first car you took down a strip? 
Okay, I'm going to back up a little bit. So so my brother had manual cars. So the first car I learned how to shift and do things like that was a 69 383 Super B Mopar. So I was sitting on his lap shifting gears and driving. And then when I turned 16. So you're 16 years old and sitting on your brother's lap? Negative, negative. I was eight years old. That's when I learned how to drive a stick. And then when I got to be 16, I was able to drive by myself. And then I didn't make it to the track until I was uh, 18 years old. And I had a, a uh, the first car I took to the track was a 69 uh, Barracuda 340 four-speed car. That was the very first car. And it was, I mean, back then it was okay. It was running like 1220s and 1230s, things like that. And, you know, it didn't have uh, solid motor mounts. So every time I popped the clutch, it had the rubber motor mounts and it'd break the distributor and be breaking up. I mean, it was a... It was a clown act, but I was just starting out, you know, so it was fun. It was fun. Well, you're 18 years old going down the track for the first time. You've been behind the wheel for 10 years at that point. What do you remember from that first time racing down the track? What were the nerves like? What were you, what was going through your head? A lot of time had kind of built up to this moment. What do you remember from first time jamming the gears and wandering down the quarter mile? Well, anybody that's drag race, the very first time is kind of a blur. It's, it's a blur the first time you go down the track. It's a blur the first time you go down the track in a fast car because everything happens fast. But the, the thing I remember was um, my car didn't have much traction, so I was really concentrating on not getting out of control and fishtailing and, and going over in the other lane and things like that. I was at a US 30 drag strip and it's, it wasn't the widest racing surface and the groove was even smaller than that. So, you know, it was a little it was a little challenge. And then, you know, it was like a test and tune. So it wasn't a lot of people out there. So I wasn't worried about that. I was more worried about, you know, not looking like a clown, you know, the first time going down the track. You know, after watching professionals do it, you know, you think it's easy until you actually out there under the lights and, you know, let the clutch out. Then it's a different story because you're the one performing now. So, so you grow up tinkering on Mopars. You've got kind of that engineering mind and you say you've got a degree in engineering. Uh, Tell us about your education a bit, Ted. Uh, I have a a degree in mechanical engineering from um, Morrison Institute of Technology. That was associate degree and then when I got in the Air Force I finished my four-year degree at Wayland Baptist uh, University. I also have a degree in human resources and also electronic systems because I worked a lot of electronic systems in the Air Force. Um, So you know the Air Force pushed education a lot. It was easy uh, to go to school so you know it's always a good thing to make yourself smarter. So that's always a good thing. So So I think you're multifaceted because you're a racer. You're also a tech guy. You do chassis inspections. But now I know you do HR, engineering, and a little <laughs> bit everything under the sun. So 18 years old, you're going down the drag strip for the first time. You get your associate's degree. Then you go into the Air Force. Tell us about that. Yep, I left uh, for the Air Force in January of 1983. And uh, the only regret I have about that is I sold my Barracuda. Because I didn't know I could take it all over the country with me, and the Air Force would ship it. I didn't know that, so I sold it. So my first 10 years in the Air Force, I didn't really have a race car, you know. Um, so that that kind of, you know, looking back on it, I was like, man, I should have kept that car. But I started, I take that back, because I, I raced in Alaska. So Alaska in Fairbanks, they didn't have a, a permanent drag strip. So they have what's called Golden Days, and that's the longest day of the year, which is uh, 
June 21st, summer solstice. So they actually shut down the, the expressway, bring out a portable uh, tower and Christmas tree, and we drag race for three days. You know, so I got a little taste of drag racing, and then that was it for about four or five years until I moved to the D.C. area. So We've had on the podcast already the likes of Arnie the Farmer, Beswick, and Lee Bardo, guys that raced on the abandoned airport runways. And you think of that kind of style of racing really from that era, from the pioneers and the the very, you know, in the 50s and the 60s. But I guess you never hear stories about that really stretching into the 80s and into this era. So so that's, that's kind of a neat element. You really have been a part of all of it. You started at US 30, and then you kind of went back in time to one of those temporary drag strips. That's kind of a, a neat, unique dynamic. The whole time through the Air Force, what part of drag racing uh, stayed with you that whole time? You went 10 years without a car, but I, if I know Ted like I think I know, the wheels were always turning, and drag racing was never far removed from you that whole time. Well, that's correct, because uh, in those 10 years, I was stationed in Washington, D.C. area, so I would always go to Englishtown, uh, Reading, you know, and watch uh, NHRA as far as the pro stocks. And so I always kept connected. You know, and I and they have drag strips down there, uh, Maryland International Raceway and Capital Raceway, 7580 Cecil County. I mean, they have a plethora of drag strips down there. So I was always around drag racing until, you know, I got my present car, my Duster, um, and then I went racing for real. Now, you had mentioned before we went on the air here that you had actually purchased a car while you were overseas. Tell us. A little bit about that. I mean, when you go into the Air Force in the 80s, uh, the Internet is still 10, 15 years off. But thanks to the invention of the Internet and a thing called RacingJunk.com, you kind of got reconnected to a lot of that stuff. Uh, absolutely. It was uh, 2002. Um, and Racing Junk, I had just heard about Racing Junk. So I'm in Korea, you know, 13 hours ahead or 12 hours. And uh, I'm perusing through Racing Junk, and I see this duster for sale. And... Uh, one thing led to another. I talked to the guy, and I just so happened that a buddy of mine that I lived next door to in Alaska was about five miles from this guy in Georgia. So I sent him to go look at the car and make sure it was good, and I bought the car sight unseen by myself, but a buddy of mine told me it was good. So I bought the car in, like, March, and I didn't leave Korea until June. So he stored it at his house, and I had a race car waiting for me when I got back. So that was pretty cool. Something to look forward to. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> kind of the proverbial carrot dangling at the end of that string. As soon as that's over, you've, uh, you're not just going back home into a life of you know, somewhat normalcy again. Yep. You know, the things that we all take for granted each and every day, we wake up and you know, have the freedom to do what we want to do and not be on someone else's schedule all the time. But you got that race car sitting there waiting for you, too. So, uh Talk about the military, Ted. How does what you've learned from there, whether it be the, the discipline, the routine, just the things that you've learned while in the military, in the Air Force, how have you taken that into drag racing? Has it had any impact on your racing program and the way you approach it? Well, absolutely, because in, in the military, they want you to get it right the first time. You know, and that's that's the whole thing about taking orders. When somebody give you an order, you don't say, huh, what did you say? You got to get it right the first time because people's lives are at stake a lot of times. So you got to get it right the first time. And in drag racing, you want to get things right the first time because if you're going down the track 
and you don't get something right, you can get hurt. So that kind of correlates um, directly. And then the whole discipline of, um, you know, making sure you're doing your preventive maintenance and making sure things are straight before you go down the track. That's what you learn in the military. You learn how to take care of things. You make sure things are right because in the military, people's lives are in, you know, in harm's way. And drag racing, it could be the same thing if your car is going fast enough. And sometimes you don't even have to be going fast, but you need to make sure those things are right. So, you know. You know, one of the reasons that we do this podcast, Ted, is we want to tell the stories of the Byron Dragway community. And there are people that we interview, and we always learn something about people that you don't always know about them. And I think it's helpful for people to know that who's lined up in the staging lane beside them and to learn little things and tidbits. And, and I've known you, Ted, personally for probably 10 years now, and you, made a, At least. you mentioned yep. something to me yesterday that I'm not going to talk about this subject. Well, the minute you tell me you're not going to talk about a subject, I'm immediately going to pry into it. Why you? Why you? Yes. Why you don't want to talk about it? Yes. And and then you've you've said that you know you're comfortable, but one thing I want to point out about you, Ted, for all the listeners, is that you know while you were in the Air Force, while you have served the country, you don't uh, go around touting or looking for you know recognition, the handshake, those sort of things. I think anybody in the military deserves that. You know, they deserve the handshake, the thank you. You go and do what you did so that we can do what we want to do. But uh, I, I think it's important that you had brought up a, an event that happened in your life that I did not know about. And we often think about the events that happened on September 11th as something that happened in New York City, something that happened in Washington, D.C. And for us in the Midwest, you know, the, the closest connection we have is what we saw through the television screen. But we don't always think about the people that were there. You know, they're they're from the Midwest. They're from other places. And, and you've revealed a little bit to me yesterday. But uh, really want to just shine some light for a moment, if you would, on on the, what you experienced that day. Okay. So um, I worked at the Pentagon uh, at the National Military Command Center. And uh, I was in the Pentagon that day. And uh, the day started off like normal, 6 o'clock in the morning when we when we uh, come to work and we have a, a daily briefing to brief the status of all the communication systems that we're in charge of. Um, and uh, so we were in this meeting and the, the, an airman came in and said, hey, a, uh, a plane just crashed into a building in New York. So earlier it, w- it was a baseball player that had a small plane that got disoriented and crashed so we thought it was a small plane so we didn't think nothing of it and the reason why he told us is because when we have a n- military response to anything that happens it comes through the national military command center they like the command post to give the orders out to all the other that's that's the top echelon of the military for any branch the National Military Command Center. So we keep up to date on what things are going on around the world. So we didn't really think nothing of it. And uh, then we got out of the meeting and we're sitting in front of monitors because every desk has a TV monitor because we're evaluating events over the world. And we saw the second plane go into the building in the World Trade Center. So then at that time, we knew that wasn't an accident. It It was on purpose. So we called what's called a uh, crisis action team, a CAC, uh, together of all these people from different branches. And you kind of spin up this whole operation from 
what your response is going to be to what we're going to do. So that's we went into that mode. And um, that's when our building shook. And at that time, we didn't know a plane had hit our building. I actually thought that someone had pulled a truck into the center court of the Pentagon and exploded a bomb, but come to find out that it, it was actually a plane. And so we have this, this special phone system that when it's unplugged or something, alarms go off. So all these alarms are going off in the Navy Command Center. And so that was one of the main places that would hit the Navy Command Center, and it was a, it was an Army uh, financial center. And the good thing that came about that is they were renovating the Pentagon, so the plane actually hit on the renovated portion of the Pentagon, so it lessened uh, what happened, and a lot, lot less fatalities because everything was up to date, new codes and things like that. So um, once, once uh, that happened, you know, uh, the fire alarms and things are going off, and you know you always train. The first thing to do when a fire alarm goes off, you leave. But where I was working and the equipment that we have, you just can't leave it. It has to be manned 24-7. So we had to decide what we were going to do as far as leaving. So all our plans called for it. The only time you're really leaving is when an enemy is overrunning it and you destroy the equipment on the way out. But, you know, this was a different circumstance, so we really couldn't destroy the equipment. So, you know, it was some discussion about what we were going to do and who we could leave back. And, you know, it, it happened, you know, so you think of a Pentagon as the five-sided building. You know, we were like three sides away from where it actually impacted. So, you know, we had smoke, no fire, but, you know, just smoke going through the ventilation system, so we had to leave. Um, so a couple engineers... Um, stay back to try and uh, mitigate the smoke and so we evacuated the building and once you evacuate you got to make sure you know everybody's accounted for so at that time I had 43 people working for me and like 41 of them was accounted for and we couldn't find two and um, then we got the call that the Secretary of Defense wasn't leaving to go to another location so that we had to go back into the building so we made a decision that, I mean, we had orders. We had to go back. Well, there's whatever's going on, you have to go back. So uh, I told my boss that I would go back first, you know, to see what was, what was, and then come back. And if we can go back in, we'll bring everybody back in. So I distinctly remember running back up to the building and, you know, it's, it's, it's mayhem. You know, it's, you have helicopters landing. You got 40,000 people evacuating the building. You got firefighters on the other side fighting, fighting a fire. You have 395 expressway around the Pentagon. People just got out of their cars and just, just left and walked away. So it, it's total chaos around. You know, people are crying. You know, you've seen people come out that were burnt. You know, it's, it's a chaotic scene. So I, I don't want people to think that it was just, you know, I'm talking about it casually, but at that time, you know, it was it was it was you know pretty intense. So I go back up to the uh, go back up to the Pentagon, and the, and the security guard say, "Well, you can't go back in." And I showed him my badge, and he's like, "Well, I don't really care what badge you have. You you can't go back in because the building's on fire, and you know it's another plane out there." So I just I just told him I had to. You know, that's my job. You're doing your job, so I'm going back in. So. You know, we exchanged a few words that wasn't all that pleasant, but I went back in anyway. And it was about, you know, 
200 yards and three stories that I had to go to where our facility was. So I went back in and, you know, it was pretty clear smoke. And so I said, well, we'll come back in. So I gathered up some, some masks. We had these little oxygen deals and I ran back out there. And so I have, I had four work centers, 46 people that, you know, fall under my preview. So when you go back in and you working around certain equipment, you have to have two people at all times because it's a security thing, you know, that one person don't do something or sell some secret, you know, it's two person integrity is what it's called. So with uh, four work centers, I had to take eight people back in. So I kind of asked for volunteers. I said, here's the deal. Yes, the building is still on fire. It's not really that dangerous, you know, right now. Number two, it is another plane out there that's unaccounted for, and it might be coming back to the other side. But the deal is the Secretary of Defense didn't leave, so we have to go back in. So I asked for volunteers. So everybody was standing there looking at me, and it was like all the 18 and 20-year-olds, I'll go, Sarge, I'll go. But they didn't have enough experience, you know, to be in an entire work center with only two people. So I said, you, 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 and you, you got to, let's go. You know, and they they came. They didn't have a choice. You know, we, we're under attack. You don't have a choice. There's no arguing. There's no, no, I'm not going. I'm So we go back up there, and now I got eight people with me, and then my, my boss came back in too. And uh, same security guard, same scenario. You can't go back in. You know, that whole thing. So I just kind of brushed them off and we went back in and, and started working. And uh, the, the one one of the things that I remember uh, most distinctly is I knew everybody back in this area was worried about me because they knew I was in the Pentagon. So, you know, like most kids, I thought about my mom first. Everybody back home you're talking about. Yeah, everyone back home as far as in Chicago. You know, I had a family in D.C., but I was thinking about, you know, everybody thinking about what's happening in D.C. and they Chicago, you know. So the first thing I thought of was to call my mom. So, you know, I'm in communications, right? So I called and the phone was busy. But we had this phone system where we could pick it up, dial a, We have a special phone system that we pick it up, dial a certain code, and it'll interrupt the call. So I call, and it interrupts my mom's call, and she's like, Teddy? You know, that's my name. You know, most people call me Ted, but she called me Teddy. I was like, yeah, ma. Hey, I'm in the Pentagon. It's hectic right now, but I'm okay. And, you know, she was like, well, they messed up the world. It's never going to be the same, and that's a true statement because after that day, nothing was the same. You know, we go to security. We go to the um, airport now. You're taking off your shoes. You're walking through metal detectors. People forget that before that, you get on a plane just like you got on a bus. It was it was no real security. You just, you just you had your ticket, you showed your ticket, and you got on. So that changed. So I you know I told her I was okay and I was hung up. Called when my wife worked because she was also active duty Air Force. So I called her and told her I was okay or left a message because she actually wasn't there. And then we had got there at six o'clock in the morning. We stayed there to eleven o'clock at night because the FBI cordoned off everything because it's, it's a crime scene. And they wouldn't let anybody in, and the, the Red Cross wasn't authorized to come in yet. So about 6 o'clock that evening, one of my, my uh, workers came up and said, hey, hey, Sarge, we're kind of hungry. 
So it's like 20, 30 restaurants in the Pentagon, but everybody left. We were the only ones left. So uh, we go to the center court, and uh, they had kind of abandoned it. So we just fired up the grill and started cooking. So as we start cooking, the fire department, the firefighters come out, security come out. We're feeding everybody because nobody's eating. So we did that, and, you know, we just commandeered everything. <laughs> you know, we're not thieves, but we didn't pay for it. This is like a wartime scenario right now. I think I think you're forgiven for that, Ted. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> you know, on this podcast, we have people – we ask them to paint a picture for us what it's like to race a certain kind of car, to do this in a vehicle, to do that, what it's like, take us inside the helmet. But you just painted in vivid detail something that, you know, I hope none of our listeners ever experience in their lifetime, but something that I think you said that the world has never been the same. We all agree with that. But I think in some ways, I don't want to say we've grown numb to what happened on that day. But we're coming up on, you know, we're going to be next year 20 years removed from when that happened. And I think it's a reminder. You know, we everybody said after it happened, never forget. And I think there are times where a lot of people have forgotten about what happened. And like I said before, I think a lot of people think of it as something that happened in a field in Pennsylvania, happened in downtown New York City or Washington, D.C., but you're somebody sitting right next to me that has firsthand experience of what happened that day. And while everybody went home and hugged their loved ones and, and looked at the world through a different scope, you went to work. And you didn't just go to work uh, painting cars or laying concrete or doing everything that the world needed to do just to, to keep the world moving. But you went to work not knowing what the threat was, what was coming your way. And you really went and pressed into service in a very trying, unexpected time. So I guess first, thank you for that, Ted, uh, to you and then all your men that jumped in not knowing what they were getting into. But, uh, you know, appreciate you sharing that, too. It's one thing, Randy, that, you know, I I don't want people to kind of forget, you know, the significant emotional event for the older people was, was Pearl Harbor, you know, and then. As time went on, you know, my generation kind of forgot about Pearl Harbor. It was just a story. and You feel invincible this, again. Yep, yep. And then this is the same thing. You know, I taught Air Force ROTC in a high school, and I had kids that were two and three years old, so they didn't really have a concept of what 9-11 was. You know, they just didn't know. You know, they heard the stories, but it didn't really – it didn't really mean anything to him. And, you know, I get that. I don't get offended when people don't, you know, recognize what happened on that day. I mean, I lost, you know, it's 23 people that I knew personally that, you know, died in the Pentagon. You know, so for me, it's a significant emotional event. But for other people, it's just just something that happened, you know, and I, I don't get bent out of shape about it. That's the way the world turns, you know, time heals and changes things. And, you know, let's just hope we don't have another uh, event like that. And I guess the thing that I would point out is I've, again, I've known you for 10 years, Ted. This is something I've never known about you. You're not the kind of person out there that is telling and then embellishing stories just as a way to to seek any sort of, you run away from the limelight, if anything. And I appreciate, uh, you know, you sharing something that isn't something that you really, I guess, 
go around talking about. It's yeah. it's a pretty pretty guarded thing for you, but appreciate you sharing that with us. And you know, when I look at you, Ted, I see someone with a good attitude all the time. And people with good attitudes are people with perspective, I think. And does that play anything to do with it? I mean, you've you've always got a good attitude going. Maybe that's just uh, your DNA from day number one. But I have to think that you see a day. You could, you've seen how a, a regular Tuesday can go sour. I, I have to believe it gives you some perspective on life that you know what a real bad time is. You don't yeah. seem to sweat the real small stuff anymore. No, I mean, I mean, a good attitude will give you altitude in any situation. If you have a good attitude, I mean, because it's not what happens to you, it's how you react to it. So if you have a positive attitude, everything don't always go your way, but the way you look at it, you can kind of maneuver it to your way. So I try and keep an attitude. Do I have bad days? Do people get on my nerves? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, You're overall, human. yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I try and keep a good attitude through anything, you know, and it, it just kind of those positive vibes. People don't want to be around negative people. You know, negativity brings negativity, so I try and be positive as, as much as I can. I, I, I've been doing that a long time. So to this point, we know Ted the gearhead. We know Ted the Air Force sergeant. Take us into Ted the, uh, you know, working behind the scenes. How did you get involved with NHRA and working at the racetracks? And take us to when that began. Well, it was around 2002, and I took my car to get certified, and I had to take it like, an hour and a half, almost two hours to get it certified. So, you know, I was talking to the guy, and I was like, you know, hey, how do you get involved in this? And uh, he said, well, you know, we're looking for a person in the Washington, D.C. area. You should talk to the head tech guy, Kurt LaSure, in Division One, about, you know, seeing if you could become a chassis guy. And, you know, I kind of told him my background in mechanical engineering and always in racing. So he said, yeah, you should contact him. So I called Kurt LaSure, and he said, yeah, you know, we do need a guy uh, out that way. So why don't you come work with us first, you know, and work division races and do the technical aspect, you know, check helmets and, you know, all the safety stuff before you go down the track. So I started that, and then I was kind of an apprentice for a year. And then I went to Desert Storm. So I lost some time as far as becoming a chassis guy. And then I went to Operation Enduring Freedom. So I lost some more time. And uh, so I never got certified in Division One. It wasn't until I retired and moved to the Chicagoland area in Division Three that I actually got, got certified to become a chassis guy. So that's how I became a chassis guy. And I've been doing it here since, you know, I got back 2007. Division three kind of made me wait a little while, do a little bit more apprenticeship, and then uh, I'm the chassis dude now. <laughs> well, you're a popular guy because everybody that comes by that's 9.99 and quicker ask about our chassis day. We tell them when it is, and well, I know Ted. I'll go track down Ted. I'll see Ted about it. So, yeah. so obviously you're a guy that's become intimately familiar with the racers, and not just in the Chicagoland area because you're doing chassis on the road at. Yep. Uh, division races throughout NMCA, uh, NMRA, you know, it, it's one thing I like to point out too. I mean, when I was a racer, you know, and, and being in the air force, you and know, you're not past tense. You said was a racer. You was a racer are. then. Oh, okay. I'm still a racer oh, yeah. now. Big time. And we're going to get to that uh, <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> but the thing about it, you know, I always had safety on my mind because, you know, you have to do risk analysis in the military. So when I was drag racing, you know, I had to fill out forms and they do a risk analysis to allow me to drag race. You know, you have to be given permission 
pretty much the drag race. So safety was all on my, always on my mind. But when I became an inspector, you know, it ratcheted it up a notch. And, you know, I see a lot of people doing unsafe things and they don't understand. You know, they look at the cost. Well, why do I have to buy seatbelts every two years? Or my helmet looks good. I never use my helmet. You know, why do I have to replace my helmet? You know, all those rules were, were developed, unfortunately, in someone's incident. So it's a reason. You know, everybody's kind of cynical and think, oh, I got to get seatbelts because NHRA is making money or SFI is making money. It's just it's not a money thing. It's a safety thing. And if you ever need them and they work, then you appreciate it. But you should appreciate it before you need them. That's well, there's and just in current events, no proof of just how far things have come. Then, you know, the events last week at the Daytona 500 probably saw the most horrific crash in, in NASCAR history. And everything worked you know you can't say that that accident would have happened 20 years ago with the same outcome but everything was being used everything was pulled tight everything was being used to a t and you know that's the best case scenario from like you say there have been a lot of a uh, lot of hard lessons learned that enable those sort of things to have a good outcome today yep and uh you know the the whole uh kenny koreski uh wreck when he came across and got t-boned almost the same you know, same type incident, and, you know, they pretty much walked away also. You know, so it's a testament to the safety gear. Safety's always involving, and it new, needs to because these cars are going faster and faster and fast. I mean, it's some 10-inch drag radio cars going faster than Top Fuel did in, like, the late 70s. You know, it's, it's progressing. You know, hopefully the safety keeps up with it. Well, we all go to the track to have a good time, and there's no spoiler of that than when someone gets hurt. And so that's, you know, another case of perspective, you know, it's all a good time until someone gets hurt. The day that everybody goes home safe and cars get loaded up, shiny side up, that's a good day at the track. So regardless of how many rounds are won or any of that stuff, everybody loads up and the cars are clean, that's a good successful day. A good so, day, absolutely. So you yourself now racing, uh, mm -hmm. you've had – you know, you mentioned that you followed Pro Stock the whole time while you were through the military. And you had a car up till recently, you still own it, the Mopar Missile, yeah. that we all know you for driving. But you acquired a new car over the off-season. Tell us about that, Ted. Okay. So the the Patriot Missile is kind of semi-retired. Patriot, Patriot Missile, I Yep. But uh, I had uh, purchased a Dodge Daytona. And uh, I wanted to make a clone of the Daryl Alderman car. So I just happened to have a buddy that works in NHRA with me. He said, hey, I live down here, and I know they got the car back. So why don't you come down here and take a look at it? So I said, okay, you know, let's get permission. So, excuse me. I went down there, and I asked Dave Hutchins. He's half of Wayne County Speed Shop. Uh, would it be okay if I, you know, took pictures and if I made a clone? I I uh, described to him what we do as far as the Nostalgia Pro Stock thing and showed him pictures. You know, he's an older gentleman, so he's not so much up on the Internet so much. So I showed him pictures and what we do. You know, I put up a YouTube video of when we were racing at Byron, you know, me and Mark Pappas, and, and he got an idea of what we did. So he's like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll give you permission. You know, Wayne County's no longer in business, and, you know, we're not involved in drag racing. Sure. So I asked him, well, what are you doing with this car? 
And he said, well, you know, it hung in a restaurant, uh, Race Rock Cafe in Orlando for like eight years. Race Rock went bankrupt and they got the car back and they happened to have one of their original B1 Pro Stock motors. So they married the car up, the actual Daryl Alderman Championship car 91 with this motor and trans. And they were going, you know, send it to Barrett Jackson or Meekum, you know, at auction. So he told me that, and I was like, well, that's what they're going to do. I'm going to make a clone. So we, we all go to lunch, and my buddy said, no, don't ask them what they're going to do with it. Ask them if they want to sell it. So I asked him, and we struck up a deal. And strange enough, like two weeks later, the car was in my trailer following me home. I don't know how that happened, but it happened. So that's the actual, you know. So you go, go there ahead. to take notes yep. to help you building your clone replica. And then before you're even going home, you've already got a deal struck to, to buy the actual thing. That is correct. That is correct. It took me about 15 minutes to say, yeah, I'll do it. So you that know. car is making headlines while you're serving in the Air Force. I guess if you were to flash back, you know, going on 30 years now, when this car is winning the championships, late 80s, early 90s, your wildest dreams, Ted, did you ever imagine that that car would be in your garage and you'd be driving Ab that car? Absolutely not, because I've always been a Mopar guy. So in the early 90s, every Mopar guy knew Wayne County, and they were winning championships, whooping up on WJ and anybody else they lined up against. Uh, so that was the car. That that was the car. And I saw it at English Town. I saw it at Reading. All that time, I was like, man, I sure wish I could drive that. That would be great. You know, that would be awesome. But, you know, the cost of running real pro stock was Air Force budget wasn't covering that. But, yes, I always thought about about doing that. And now come full circle, I actually own a car. It's like, you know, sometimes I still can't believe that I have that actual car. It's, it's incredible. So this podcast being recorded in 2020, and you had an invitation as well as other members of your Nostalgia Pro Stock group to go out to Pomona for the Winter Nationals earlier this year. And it's the 50th anniversary for Pro Stock, and you guys were on prominent display out there. Give me a little taste of what was going on at the Winter Nationals. Well, it was a long haul, but it, it was it was fun. You know, out on the West Coast, everybody, well, a lot of people are in the Nitro, you know, because that's kind of where Nitro grew up. So the people out there were very appreciative of seeing Pro Stocks because they don't get to see them, you know, Nostalgia Pro Stock. That's kind of a Midwest, East Coast thing. So they got to see that. But the best part for me was uh, I got to meet Scott Jeffreyon's son. And when he saw the car, it kind of brought tears to his eyes because he was he was 11 or 12 when that car was running. And, you know, his dad was running with Daryl Alderman. And that was the first time he saw that car in, like, 16 years because he's 27 now. And, you know, both the Daytonas disappeared. His dad car went to Australia, won an Australian Pro Stock Championship, and then the next year they wrecked it. And then this one was in the – in the Race Rock Cafe, and then the only other Daytona, Wayne County around, is the one that's in Don Garlic's museum. So for him to see that, you know, he had a emotional event, and, you know, I let him sit in the car, and we took pictures, and now we're friends on Facebook. So that was that was one of the, the shining moments, besides, of course, making a pass at Pomona at the Winter Nationals. That was one of the great things. There's a good chance if that car went across the auction block at Barrett-Jackson or Meekum, uh, a collector could have ended up with it. It could end up just like the other, sitting in a museum or hanging up in a restaurant somewhere. Now, you are holding on to a piece of history. You know, you are now a steward of pro stock and drag racing history. 
I guess what uh, what are your plans with it? And obviously, you've taken it out to the track, you've raced it, you don't have it on display and locked away or hidden. I guess what are your your goals with it, and what do you like seeing done with those kinds of cars in general? So that that's a tough one because I asked Dave Hutchins uh, when I got it from him. I said, "Hey, Dave, you know what would you like to see me do with the car?" And he was like, "I don't know, Ted. It's your car. Do what you want to." So I thought about it, and they I seem, thought about. I mean, it. that response sounds rather unemotional to me. This is somebody that has had that car for so long, but they don't seem to have a real emotional connection to it. He, he's he's disconnected from drag racing. He, he, you know, I invited him out to the track, and he don't. Now, Mike Sullivan, the other half of Wayne County, he's he's still into racing and things like that. But yeah, Dave, he's like, you know, it's just. You know, this is a means to, for me to do something else. So he had no emotional attachment to the car. Not really, you know. Um, so I got the car, and I said, well, it's the 50th anniversary, so I got to make it run at Pomona. So I got it in October, and I was thrashing until a week before Pomona to get it, get it race ready. Now, it was show car ready, but show car ready means that you know, the four-link bars wasn't tight. There was no oil in the transmission. The brake lines wasn't tight. It was just put together to push across the auction block. You know, so that's what I was working on. The motor was complete, but that was it. You, yes. No, that's no, perfect. Oh, okay. Well, I, so, no, no, continue. Sorry. Okay. So I, I said, so my initial plans was, hey, this is a race car. I'm going to race it. But I took it to PRI, and the reaction to the car was like crazy. Either people loved it or hated it. Oh, that's the car that they were cheating in, which is not exactly true because they got accused of cheating in, in 94 and 95 with the Avengers and not with the Daytona. But everybody said, hey, that's Wayne County. They cheated, so that car is associated with them, so that's the car that cheated. Well, it's the championship-winning car, so that's yes. going to be the one. Well. They were winning all those races, so guilty by association, I suppose. Absolutely. So, I, and I don't so, want to use the word term guilty and people come back at us and act like we made any judgment there. So, no judgment here. No, no, no judgment. But, you know, man, it, it's it's been 30 almost years and people are still talking about it like it was yesterday. It struck you a know? chord. It's, it did. It and did. so it makes it even more a piece of history. Yep. So, um, I said, well, I'll run it at Pomona. No, when I was at PRI, before, prior to PRI, I said, it's a race car. I'm going to race it. That was built as a race car. Yeah, it's got some history, but people like to see it going down the track. Then after PRI and the whole reaction to the car, I'm like, ooh, wee. If I race that car and, and something happens to it, you know, I'm going to be the bad guy from, you know, Mopar Nation forever. So I said, well, I'll run it at Pomona. And then uh, I have the other Daytona. I'll make a clone of it. So uh, I bought a stacker trailer just to take two cars so people can see the real car, you know, because it disappeared. So for Mopar people, that is like the car. So that's what I plan. I might run it one more time flat out just to see what it'll, it'll do because I, I boarded the run at Pomona because that was my only the second time in the car. And I wanted to make sure the parachute came out, the brakes worked, so I didn't make a full pass. It went seven ninety eight like a buck sixty. So on that pass it probably would have went seven sixty something flat out. So it's gonna be a a traveling show car that if I'm pressed into it, 
it will can definitely go down the track. So that's we my answer right now. We appreciate you not locking it up, putting it in a bubble, and hiding it away under a lock and key. Stuff like that needs to be seen. It needs to be out there. Uh, even cooler yet, you took it to Pomona, took it down the track, entertained the fans with it. That's too cool. But like you said, something happens to that car. It's Absolutely. one of one. Absolutely. You know, you can build yep. another of this, another of that, as long as you're safe and everything's yep. good in that way. But that's yeah. one of one. And there's all one kinds of, of stories of different Garlitz cars. And, you know, these got so many in the museum, but then there are other ones that, you know, haven't seen the light of day because things have happened to those cars yep. as well, falling into other hands. That's correct. So, uh, it's your car. You can do what you want with it. So it's kind of fun to pick your brain and see <laughs> right. what actually what actually the car owner thinks. Maybe I should do a survey. <laughs> hey, should I race it or should I just make it a show car? So well, I trust you know. your judgment, Ted, with <laughs> thanks, what you do thanks. with it. Appreciate you taking the time, Ted, to talk about all these things. Uh, is there anybody that you want to thank or, or credit for helping you out with all your racing these years? Well, of course, you know, uh, I have to thank my brother because he got me into it. And then, of course, my dad gave me the wherewithal to, to stick with it and the work ethic and things like that, you know. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, you're almost humbled by events that, you know, you can never see coming, you know, 10 years from now. You, you never know what's in store for you. So I, I just feel blessed and honored to be uh, doing what I do and doing what I love and, you know, sometimes get paid for it, you know. So it that's 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 what I like to say, you know, about that. And, you know, you know I, my race operation is funded by Ted Peters Retirement Fund, you know. So I don't really have too many sponsors. To, and the you know, retirement's to getting further and further. It's like the, the quarter-mile cube won't approach. <laughs> that's, that's correct, you know. So, But, Ted, you are a great ambassador for – the NHRA for Route 66 Raceway, where we spent years working together. A yep. uh, great ambassador for the Nostalgia Pro Stock scene. And uh, happy to call you a friend, Ted, and appreciate you joining us on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it, Randy. You know, um, you know, like you were saying about the whole um, military thing in the Pentagon, you know, it – you know, I don't feel bad telling the story because people need to understand, you know, what went on and what can happen again. So, you know, I, I shy away from it because, you know, I I don't like that word um, hero. You know, I look at it. I was doing my job and doing what had to be done at that time. So, you know, that that whole hero thing and you did it kind of makes me a little uncomfortable because I don't like the limelight like that, which is kind of crazy because I don't mind, you know, racing the car in front of thousands of people. But when it comes to, to things like that, you know, I don't brag. You know, I don't talk about what I have or where I've been or what I do. If someone asks me, naturally, I'll talk about it. But, you know, it, it's good. You know, when I was teaching ROTC, I would always tell the kids every year on that date, you know, I'll show them a, a slideshow of what happened you know, and gave them my story. So, you know, it, it stays fresh, you know, and hopefully we won't forget what happened. So I appreciate the opportunity to get the story out to more people, you know, and, and, and thanks for the podcast. And I appreciate it. And, uh, is I feel honored to call Randy Simpson my friend. <laughs> thank you. That's the highlight <laughs> of the show, Ted, for me personally. Ted, thank you. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Byron Dragway podcast. A special thank you to our guest, Ted Peters, for being on the show, and more importantly, for his service to the United States of America. And another thank you to Autoland Outlets for being the presenting sponsor of today's episode. Thank you, and we'll see you at the track.